0: Hello and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I'm Panel Camp of Washington University in St. Louis. I am joined by my co hosts, Sarah Bae Jung of York University. Sarah, it's nice to see you. Lovely to see you, panel. You know, by way of an icebreaker, I was going to ask you and Harvey about your pandemic treats. And I want to clarify what I mean by pandemic treats. I feel like a pandemic treat is one of two different types of things. It is either a a sort of joyful thing that you can now do in the odd conditions of pandemic that you couldn't do before. Or it could be a particular self-care habit or thing you create like a cocktail a ritual, something that is helping you cope. I mean, the pandemic is terrible, and it is a persistent state of loss. For some people, it is the loss of life, of health, of work, income. I think most of us are dealing with some sort of separation from family members, inability to socialize. There's so much, not, uh, so much loss. But over the past six months, I have also heard from time to time people mention things that bring them joy in the pandemic, right? These are of many different types. You know, the disappearance of a lot of meetings. Um, that's one thing that has been a pandemic treat for some people. Um, so I don't know, Sarah, do you have a pandemic treat that's been helping you get, get through?
1: Gosh, I don't don't know. After that intro panel, it's a little bit like uh, you know the the other than that, Mrs. Lincoln. How was the play? I Um, I you know I think uh, an upside for me has been uh, I won't even call it an upside, but but a, 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 a not insignificant joy among all of this has been the. Uh, The fact that my younger son is relocated to Toronto, and so I get to see him uh, more often. But I am separated from uh, the rest of my family by what is right now a closed international border. Um, And so that's, you know, that's really challenging. But I think, you know, I mean, I've been really... um, Humbled, but also really inspired by uh, what I see so many people doing in so many communities um, and on behalf of each other. And some of that's related to performance and art making, and that's been really encouraging and uplifting. Some of it is related to education and just how students and teachers are keeping each other going and, and planning as best they can and, and in, in and amid uh, you know, really difficult and even tumultuous circumstances. And I've been really um, awed and inspired by young activists who have been at the forefront of some really important conversations regarding uh, anti-black racism, BIPOC issues, uh, environmental change. And also, I, I was just having a conversation with a, a, a fourth-year drama student, theater student here at York, um, who, in accounting of everything, also, you know, was really um, very passionate about making sure that we don't leave behind uh, some issues, right, and that we don't let attention to, to new things um blind us or obscure the other projects that that have been really important uh gender equality trans rights um and you know and and attention to the invisibility of in, in, of indigenous peoples and and you know the focus on indigeneity and so i think that th- this is a difficult time to be sure but there's a lot of positive um and even uh hopeful moments in this and i i, I look especially to you know, to students who I think are doing so much of that important work.
0: That's awesome. Um, I, I was thinking more along the lines of, like, I can wear flip to, to a meeting with the team. My, my, I think it's awesome what you've said. It's so inspiring and so true that these demonstrations of humanity are getting us through, but...
1: Alright, let, let me back that up again. Okay, so, um, <laughs> so I, my, my I, I feel like I get to like dress like a Pina Bausch dancer every day, right? That I yes. am like, I'm like constantly like wearing nice clothes and bare feet. Um, and, um, and I've been binging, um, you know, really great uh, television, um, including yeah. the Baroness Van Sketch Show, which if you don't know it, you should go out and watch it
0: immediately that's excellent. I'm going to make a note of that. Um, Great to see you again, Sarah. We are also joined by Harvey Young of Boston University. Harvey, do you have any pandemic traits that you've uh, discovered or invented in the last six months that are helping you get through this time?
2: Yeah. uh, I mean, I think that I haven't had the reprieve from Zoom. It's like, you know, one of the Uh, odd realities of my my life is that I've never spent more time in meetings uh, than I have this year. Uh, But that being said, I will say that it's old school technology that makes me happy, which is the old fashioned conference call, right? Like the just being able to have like walk around having a meeting by phone without seeing people uh, actually allows you to multitask and be outside. So that's been a gift for me. Uh, And then I'll say, you know, also in in the spirit of Zoom, it's really been Zoom happy hours, right? Like I've really got into Zoom happy hours. Like, you know, so just when I think I never want to like do uh, a Zoom meeting again, uh, you know, usually that same day, someone's like, hey, let's have drinks via Zoom. And then I have the best time and I feel like I'm sitting like, you know, not at a bar with them, but kind of like I'm in the same room with them. You know, so that's been a wonderful experience for me.
0: I I agree. Those have been similar to my uh, pandemic treats. I the the meeting the Zoom meeting phenomenon is interesting. I accomplished a really difficult kettlebell workout during a meeting with my dean and other chairs of departments. And I just it was at the end of a couple weeks where it was just so the onslaught of planning and problem solving and meetings was so great that I was like, I need to work out. I'm gonna go out of my driveway. I'm going to put the meeting on and I'm just going to swing this kettlebell with the audio and the video off and just go for it and it was great. I saw Charlotte Canning posting on Facebook I think or maybe it was Twitter about you know the possibility of participating in two different meetings at once via Zoom which I think might just fry your brain but it is you know a way to sort of get a lot of stuff done. When time is minimal, I, I
2: will say I have um, no idea what that workout is that you just mentioned. I have no clue, what that <laughs> is. And, I've, and and that might be one of my successes for this this summer. <laughs> <laughs> just avoid avoiding new workouts. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that has been one way. I've gotten a little overboard with the workouts, but um, it's it's helping me get through. Today on the podcast, we are going to be talking about the two big defining events of of twenty twenty. We will ta- we will talk about the protests for Black Lives in Portland, Oregon. We are delighted to welcome uh, Justine Nakase and Kate Breedison who have witnessed the ongoing protest actions firsthand. They are both Portland-based scholars, and they are going to tell us in our first segment about what they've seen. We are also going to talk about the other defining event of the year. There is no end to the potential conversation one can have about what the pandemic is and what it's doing in higher education and performing arts. Um, But we wanted to talk just a bit about how theater and performance studies programs are confronting the challenge of teaching in the fall, both online and in person. Um, And we'll talk a bit about some of the first instances of online scholarly communication that has been shaped by the pandemic conditions atha went online this year um, there have been symposia uh, that have been completely held on zoom um, and and we've had a chance to encounter some of these things so we want to talk about that finally we will share a little bit of news about the future of this podcast itself um, and let listeners uh, know what they can expect in the way of some changes to on tap um, in the coming year and finally we we will share our drafts So it's been several months since we released uh, a podcast episode. So much has happened in the way of news, um, but there were a few items we wanted to highlight for listeners. One, um, on June 13th, the executive committee of ASTOR voted to postpone uh, the Society's 2020 conference until 2021 in response to the pandemic. Um, In its place, there will be a set of loosely connected voluntary activities that will be organized that will allow scholars to share their research and keep connected Um, uh, But the conference um, meeting on the theme of theater and performance after repetition will be postponed until the following year and is now scheduled uh, for a meeting in person in San Diego, um, October 29th through 31st, 2021. Um, Next, Tufts University's PhD program in in the Department of Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies announced that it will not be accepting applications for their MA PhD program uh, for fall of 2021. This is a decision that many PhD programs um, have taken across uh, disciplines, across universities. Um, uh, I I went and there's an, an announcement about this on Tufts Uh, Theater, Dance, and Performance Studies PhD website. I've looked at a few other PhD programs in the field, and I'm not aware of other PhD programs making a similar decision, but it wouldn't surprise me if more did. Um, That's one of the things, one of the major events in the field that has been that has been happening and has been happening across academia as as programs respond to the way that the pandemic has stopped research right research that involves travel research that involves um, live performance events cannot happen Um, there's also likely to be you know negative effects on the job market and so some phd programs are putting their resources into giving graduate current graduate students an extra year um, in response to that Finally, I wanted to mark the, the passing of Eric Bentley um, on August 5th at the age of 103. Uh, Bentley was a highly prolific scholar, translator, and playwright who championed the work of uh, European modernists, and in particular, Bertolt Brecht. Um, and so through his career in this work, he had a major effect I- uh, um, shaping the way that European modern drama has been taught. There's a fantastic obituary in the New York Times, and, and Richard Schechner also posted a detailed remembrance of Bentley on his own uh, Facebook page, which I'd encourage listeners to check out. So first, we wanted to talk about protest activism and the fight for black lives in Portland, Oregon. On May 28th, in response to the police killings of Breonna Taylor, Dresden Reed, George Floyd, and many others, protest actions began in Portland, Oregon. The protests in Portland in many ways resembled those in dozens of other cities in the United States, but have since taken on a special significance, in part because of the long history of progressive activism in that city, and in part because of the unique tactics of the state both Oregon and the federal government uh, brought to bear to suppress those protests. So we are very happy to be able to welcome two Portland-based colleagues to share their experiences of the protests um, on the podcast. First, uh, uh, Justine Nakase, who currently teaches at Portland State University and Linfield College. Um, Her research looks at race and identity in contemporary Irish performance, and she is the co-editor of the forthcoming two-volume collection – entitled The Golden Thread, Irish Women Playwrights, 1716 to 2016. Um, Welcome, Justine. Thank you for joining the podcast.
3: Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, I've been a huge fan of the podcast, so when I got the invitation, I was very thrilled and excited, Um, but also particularly because I do feel like this is uh, such a necessary conversation to continue to be having as far as what's happening on the ground and what's that going to look like going forward.
0: Thank you so much, and, and welcome, welcome to the podcast. Um, we are also glad to have with us Kate Redison of Reed College. Kate is the author of *Occupying the Stage: The Theater of May '68*, uh, published by Northwestern University Press in 2018, and is working on uh, a project entitled *A Lifetime of Resistance: Judith Molina, 1947 to 2015*, to be published by Routledge. Um, Kate will also be known to On Tap listeners as the force behind the Dogs of Aster Calendar of 2016. <laughs> Um, uh, a highly influential publication, um, which we'll perhaps follow up on at another time. Um, and Kate has been on the ground um, in Portland um, as an observer for the ACLU and, and will be able to share uh, some of her experiences with us. Welcome, Kate.
4: Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thanks for bringing up the Dogs of Astor calendar. Um, <laughs> And I also just needed to say um, that while I've been legal observing with the ACLU, I um, need to clarify that everything I'm saying today is my own opinion um, and not representative of the ACLU. Thanks for having us.
0: Absolutely understood, and thank you so much, Kate, for being here. So, Justine, would you please tell us a bit about your experience of the protests in Portland, um, and if it's possible, I don't know, perhaps a sense of the major phases of the actions that have taken place over the summer?
3: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And it was such a fascinating process, actually, to start trying to think about what were the major phases and how are we defining those, um, and in trying to consolidate for a kind of a quick, uh, you know, soundbite version of the history to just... Recognize, I suppose, um, how multifaceted um, everything has been here. How quickly things have been changing, um, and how much more there is. So if people are interested, you know, uh, to do again, like I suppose you're more deep dive research, but I suppose we're gonna do large brush strokes. I would say there's been three major phases. Um, The first I would define as the kind of uh, initial global BLM response, right? So in reaction to uh, the George Floyd murder, those kind of large-scale protests that we saw happening all across um, the the nation, all across the globe, uh, was certainly part and parcel of what was happening in Portland. So as you mentioned, panel, on May 28th, we had the very first Portland protest, and for most of um, June, there were uh, nightly demonstrations, large-scale marches that drew, you know, thousands, between eight to 10,000, you know, people, um, these massive demonstrations of die-ins on the, um, I think it was a Hawthorne Bridge, um, of hanging giant banners across um, various other bridges. Um, but you also had then all these neighborhood demonstrations. One of the uh, first actions I attended was actually um, a march for, uh, organized for my daughter's elementary school, specifically, so we had hundreds of families going along the street. So you had these kind of pockets of, um, you know, kind of outcry or or resistance, um, as well as this kind of larger central things. But what also emerged during this first phase was what became the kind of core black block, I would say, of primarily very young demonstrators, um, oftentimes um, precariously employed or houseless, um, who were then having nightly actions at the Justice Center, which is a building that is in downtown Portland, and then would become quite central to um, not only the larger protest scene, but then when federal police uh, came to play. Uh, so that was the first phase, and what came out of that was a sense that there was very much... Um, A strong um, and and in a different tenor, right? I think than we've seen before, as far as the immediacy um, and the extremity, one could say, of of the need for change now. And what does that change look like? Um, What happened in the first phase was that there was the ask for a cut of $50 million from the Portland Police Bureau's budget. Um, On May, or sorry, June 17th, there was a a city council meeting with Mayor Ted Wheeler in which a 3%. Uh, so I think, it was, was it 17 million, um, Kate? 15. Sorry, 15, 15 million, so much less than the broader ask um, of the 20% cut that came through. Um, and I think because, to date, that's really been the only um, motion taken or action taken by Ted Wheeler, um, by the city of Portland, that is what is propelling the continued nightly presence. So I think we're on day 84, 85, depending on whose count you are. So. What we also saw then, I think, too, between these kind of larger um, actions and then the nightly um, protests at the Justice Center, was a division. I would say, if we're speaking in general terms, between people who want police reform and people who want abolition. Um, and I suppose, just to um, be transparent myself, I would say that I'm very much on the the side that wants abolition, that wants to defund the police, um, that wants to dismantle uh, systems of incarceration, and I think. I can say that a lot of that has come from my engagement with what's been happening on the ground here in Portland by, uh, and by the education and the conversations that are coming out of that. So that was kind of what was happening in May and then June, and then we kind of shifted into July, which is when it became understood that there was a federal police presence as well. So right next door to the Justice Center, which is a Portland city building, is the federal courthouse. And so there had, at some point, been federal officers sent in to protect that property. And on July 11th, uh, a protester named Donovan Labella was shot in the head by a uh, fairly close range by a less lethal munition, which sent him in critical condition to the hospital. Thankfully, he survived. He's still in recovery. Um, and then three days later is when the footage of federal officers um, unloading out of an unmarked van um, and, you know, kind of just grabbing somebody off of the sidewalk with no direct cause um, and then disappearing them was recorded and then disseminated. And then that kind of exploded into this other, like, concern about what is happening with um, with that due process and and, you know, the legality of all of that. So that became, like... A kind of, I'd say, a really intense two weeks in July of a renewed interest in what was happening and had been gone going in Portland, um, but with this different tenor of, of what is you know this federal occupation and overreach and you know um, and these very fascist tactics of um, agents that we did not know what who they were affiliated with, right? Uh, who they were answerable to in any kind of a way. So we had, um, again, this is right next door to the Justice Center. So you had these two kind of city square blocks of protest between the federal courthouse and the Justice Center. And again, we had a huge swell in numbers then, um, back up to the thousands. And this is also where we start seeing kind of interesting performance tactics like um, the wall of moms, right? So the the primarily white middle-class women dressed in yellow and carrying sunflowers and acting as a human shield. Um, We saw, you know, various blocks appearing in solidarity, so there was like chef block, and you know, uh, nurse or healthcare worker block, Asian block, or AZN block, Um, and um, and with various colors, or showing up in uniforms, and acts of solidarity, right, Um, and and as part and parcel, and some really interesting kind of um, unionization, not unionization, but like I suppose the the way in which capitalism, right, and um, the kind of prison industrial complex are overlapping there. Um, but then, and we also saw an increase in the use of Hong Kong tactics, as they're referred to now, as far as the ways in which that black block, that core group of co- protesters, were getting more organized and systemic about their use of shields, um, their use of, you know, um, diffusing tear gas through leaf blowers, um, and that arose, you know, then the dad pod arose, so there's like, you know, dads of all kinds um, and definitions showing up with their leaf blowers um, and their dad jokes. So it was this really interesting amalgamation of people that then happened, um, but then died down by the end of July because uh, Governor Kate Brown had agreed to a phase out of the federal um, police here in Portland, though that, of course, is um, an interesting Phrase considering that the phase out really means that there is, um, there was like, I think, 140 uh, officers, federal officers on the ground, and now there's 120. So they're not gone. And in fact, in the past couple of days, we've seen them coming again because we moved into phase three. And phase three um, is this idea of the again borrowing from Hong Kong this idea of be water of direct action so moving away from the federal courthouse because it was never about that anyway and instead moving back and across various neighborhoods to um, the police unions offices the Multnomah County sheriff's offices and then the past two nights to the ICE detention facility that is here in Portland um, and in doing so I think you know kind of attempting to draw out. Um, the violence that protesters are experiencing into the various neighborhoods and making that more visible to people that might not be migrating down, um, you know, kind of of their own choice to witness what is happening in those two blocks downtown. So that's, sorry, the very sweeping overview and trying to shove a lot of things that are happening in there. Um, but I suppose. That's the the story arc of the evolution of what is very much, I think, you know, we can think of as a durational performance, an iterative performance. It's gone every night, you know, for the past 84 nights. Um, But that has a lot of different moving parts. So you have protesters, you have, um, you know, with different factions, um, you have, but also, like, the huge emergence of a lot of mutual aid projects that are coming about in tandem very much with this. So I think the focus on... The violence by police and by federal police is absolutely key and core to that. But I think what gets lost in translation a lot of times are all the other kinds of like infrastructure and grassroots um, help that is happening here. You know, there's a phrase at the moment um, about you know we take care of us, and I think that is not only right in an abolitionist phase now, but the idea that maybe that's the utopic life that we're trying to push towards mm-hmm. um, through all these different ways of engaging with the movement.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much for that, Justine. It really helps give a um, sort of big picture um, for, for those of us who have not been near those actual protests. One of the themes of Zainab Tufekci's book, t- uh, Twitter and Tear Gas, which you know it is built on her experiences um watching uh, the the protests now known or identified with the Arab Spring is that social media platforms like Twitter allow for sudden mass gatherings and a certain level of organization um, uh, to the protests. But her analysis is that the the flip side of that is that the the rapidity with which those forces can come together um, doesn't prioritize sustained organizing. You don't get durable institutions out of that. You can have, you know, thousands of moms showing up Overnight and creating this dramatic force that has a real and powerful and important effect in the confrontation, but it precisely because the social media enables those sudden demonstrations, there's no, you know, persistent and durational institutional structure required, and so it doesn't get built. I'm curious to know in your experience if you have seen what looked like um, the. The elements of a more sustained um, political organizing uh, potential that could outlast the events of this summer and go on.
3: Yeah, absolutely. And I'm so excited that you bring that up because I think that is one of the main things that I have really been kind of rotating or revolving around as far as like my own engagement with this, which is. We do have these moments, like Wall of Moms, um, which make a very striking image, but then um, you know kind of fall apart. And I don't know necessarily that I would blame that completely on social media and Twitter um, and the rapidity in which this kind of gets disseminated um, and then forgotten. Because I think that when things on the ground are just moving so quickly, anyways, um, in a big moment of social reaction, right, I think that the, the kind of the federal presence was very much a reactionary moment for a lot of you know people in Portland, um, and so you know you're showing up in a kind of knee-jerk way, um, but then you're not exactly sure, like once that's kind of resolved for you, where your role is within, you know, a more sustained engagement, as you're saying. But I think what it also, like, that's erasing the fact that there's already on the ground a long history of sustained engagement here in Portland, right, that is very much behind a lot of what is happening here. So you have people like Teresa Rayford um, and Don't Shoot PDX, which have been doing this work for years and years here, um, and that are often, uh, you know, failing to somehow be mentioned in, in kind of the coverage um, of, of what's going on. Um, so that kind of background work, that work that's always going on is there. You're seeing as well, I think, because of the ability to organize online, you um, a new group of like organizations that I hope would be sustainable um, and are, are encouraging. So you have Fridays for Freedom now, and the PDX Black Youth Movement, who are both youth groups um, of uh, you know Black and Indigenous um, um, and allies in I- I'm sorry in Portland, um, who are organizing weekly events. So I think that, you know, that there is, and they're obviously utilizing things like Twitter and like Instagram uh, to disseminate information um, and to bring awareness. But I think that like that's not the only tool that they're using either. Um, For me, the biggest interesting thing that's happening with Twitter is actually the kind of historiography aspect of it Um, and this idea of narrative and controlling narrative and sources and vetting sources Um, and I think maybe Kate might be able to speak to this a little bit later but I think one of the biggest frustrations um, that anyone who is actually here on the ground or is following things closely in Portland is the way in which media, um, print media, um, television, even on a local level have decided on a certain narrative that does not seem to uh, align with what is actually literally happening in front of us. So I think people with that embodied experience of being in attendance um, or you know, are attempting as much as they can to kind of follow those uh, independent journalists um, and, and reporters on the ground about what is happening, um, there's very much a sense that there is a creation of a story that is not necessarily historically accurate, and I think what has been really a revel- like a revelation for me is this idea of Twitter as archive um, and Twitter as a, an opportunity to have a more rhizomatic, I suppose, rather than a hierarchical sense of how do we understand information, how do we understand truth. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, somebody who's going into teaching theater histories um, in the fall right, has been really resonant for me as a scholar, as well as somebody who is uh, trying to, I suppose, witness what is happening here on the ground and um and i educate or spread um, amplify that for other people
1: well i'd I'd just like to pick up on the last point around history and and i have a a question for kate um so you know in thinking about all of this you know i had occasion to go back to one of my favorite books um uh which is um occupying the stage and it's and it's really compelling to kind of think about these events unfolding in, you know, progressive or being experienced in progressive time through the lens of how Kate looks back at um, similar, if not, you know, comparable events um, in 1968. And I was, you know, thinking about the ways in which you pull out, Kate, certain ideas, moments, theaters, communities as really um, metonymic of the of the larger kind of experience and I'm wondering if as you're watching and listening and observing what's happening in Portland, you know, as a theater historian who has looked at similar events from a retrospective lens, you know, are there things that you see as particularly resonant or are there moments that seem to become Emblematic um, in ways that are not legible, uh, or are not getting picked up in the in you know in the in the, white, in the in the in the broader press, right? Which which we know is following a certain kind of formula and uh, you know and discursive model, as Justine points out. But I'm just sort of curious, like like a, you know, you're in this kind of interesting moment of someone who's looked back at these things and is also experiencing, and then looking forward and maybe even projecting forward. And I'm, I'm just curious what rises out of that for you or what are the moments, are there moments that, you know, that that speak sort of emblematically in the way that you, the events that you talk about in the book do?
4: Um, thank you for that question, Sarah. And Sarah and panel holding up my book, that was a really lovely moment. Um, I, you know, I think one of the things that I've been thinking about the most in the past, 80, five, six days is um, is about the way the city's laid out, um, and the, the the different places, the hot spots in the city where things have been happening, um, and uh, and I spend a, a lot of time in the sixty-eight book talking about like the placement of the Odeon, the history of the Odeon, same with uh, Avignon and Nancy, and sort of the geographies of the cities, and trying to think about them through. Um, like how Marvin Carlson does in places of performance. So I've been thinking about that in Portland. It's a lot harder city to get around than Paris. Paris is like pretty small and, pr- and same, so same with Avignon, which I also write about. These are small t- cities that are easy to get around. And because of the pandemic, we've had a real transportation problem in terms of the protests. A lot of, I, one of the things I really appreciate, Justine, and your fabulous um, recap of what's been happening is is the and one of the things I've been so um eager to correct, uh, and I have been trying to do so on social media is this myth that whatever's been happening in Portland is just downtown. And I think one of the things that's the most important to me now and in the future when we look back at this moment is the incredible grassroots black organizing that has been happening long before this, um, and and the the work that uh, um, particularly Black youth and Black women and femmes have been doing this summer to to continue that work all over Portland, particularly in North Portland, in the old Albina neighborhood, which is one of the historically Black neighborhoods in Portland, but that's really far from downtown. So there's been a couple marches, that have originated in the Albina neighborhood to go downtown, it's only like five miles, but at 11 PM and and just the infrastructure of the city, the way the, the streets are, the urban planning and the way the streets are organized, it's not an easy town to get around. And and at, if it wasn't the pandemic, it would be easier to hop a lift or hop a bus or get a ride from somebody. We've even dealt with that in the ACLU where we're, we end up somewhere and like, do you get in a car with somebody to go back across town? So I've been interested in the way um, the Portland protests have on a personal level rewritten my experience of the city. Almost every day now when I'm out, I'm like, oh, this was the bridge where I saw 10,000 people lie down. Oh, this was, you know, I'm driving to go uh, run an errand and I'm like, oh, here's where I got bull rushed." you know? And so I'm interested in that feeling in my body. I'm interested in that feeling in the bodies of the people in the city and how this is forever changing our experience and our experience of these hot spots, the Justice Center and the Federal Courthouse being one area. The ICE um, uh, Processing Center, which we have left largely untouched and now, as Justine said, just in the past two nights, that's become a new hotspot. So we're moving around too, right? Um, The different police precincts. Uh, So I'm interested in in the places of performance that are, are revealing themselves and how, and, and the complications of getting around and, and the tactics of using different spots. Um, that's something I've been thinking about. I haven't quite yet like thought about the sort of, the Odeon equivalent, like what's the, how am I reading a central action? Though I do think, um, as Justine said, the, in phase two, which was the downtown um, Justice Center Federal Courthouse period when the feds really started coming out? That was when um, the Wall of Moms first popped up, the Wall of Vets, the Butch Daddies with the leaf blowers, the you know, the Chef Block, the Artists, the Unemployed Block, right? And that I think that's going to be probably what we were one of the things we remember. It was so astonishing to move from two to 300 people a night down there to 10,000 in Mm -hmm. costumes, in yellow shirts and chef uh, coats and medical workers and scrubs. The visual of that, it moved me to, I was like in a respirator and goggles and swim goggles and helmet and I'm like sobbing because it was so profoundly moving to see that many people in what one of the black organizers said is the whitest city in America. To get ten thousand people on a Tuesday to come out and say "Black Lives Matter," this is not okay. What is happening was it was astonishing.
2: Yeah, so so I'm wondering how does this sort of COVID pandemic moment that you referenced uh, sort of index social activism differently? Um, you know, so just to give you a couple examples of this or a couple asides, you know, one you mentioned, Kate. The idea that you're there, you're wearing, you know, you know, the masks and all these things. Certainly, I think as a protective measure for like tear gas or, 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 or presumably of, of of what could come at you uh, from uh, the authorities, right? Uh, but there's also the reality of of how one sort of keeps oneself, you know, safe, you know, while somewhat proximate to others within the course of a pandemic. Uh, And then also the second thing is you think about these public gatherings and there seems to me sort of uh, two forms of them. One is social activist, anti-racist work, people on the streets trying to make change, you know, calling attention to police brutality, violence. And then the other one is um, sort of bodies on beaches, (laughs) you know, uh, often in... Uh, you know, red states, right, you know, sort of, you know, being in, in a different form of proximity, a, d- a different level of protesting this sort of pandemic moment. And I'm wondering sort of how does that get indexed? How does this moment of COVID um, sort of read differently in the context of Portland?
4: Um, my experience and of it is that I feel safer downtown with 10,000 people in a pandemic than I do at the grocery store. Um, and I think a lot of that is, I think uh, what Justine brought up about mutual aid, I, this is another thing that I hope when we look back on this moment and I hope as we talk about it now, particularly trying to get the word out outside of the city or even within the city for people who aren't there, the atmosphere of community care here is a. Ast- it's incredible. It's, uh, you know, there's groups like Snack Block, which is a uh, BIPOC trans led group that is, uh, you know, playing on the block a uh, 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 moniker to to organize they they give out food drink um uh eye wipes uh they're now accumulating um protest gear and and there's the medics there's all kinds of different rose hip uh, portland action medics and at every protest you go to whether it's downtown with 10,000 people or a kids march in, you know with 20 people there's people there whose job it is to help you take care of each other, right? And um, and that kind of organizing is very moving. And, and people are very, I mean, I have almost never seen people without masks. Um, uh, when I, I was doing a lot of legal observing for the Portland stripper strike, and they would uh, take off their masks sometimes to speak in a microphone. And then there would be a whole kind of uh, lotsy of wiping off the microphone, disinfecting it, giving it to the next person, same with the poll. They would set up this moving poll to each protest and they would assemble the poll and somebody would do a poll routine. And then there'd be disinfect the poll and then the next person would come. And so there's just been this attention to care and, I think the difference with the beach example is the intent, and here people are coming together with the express intent of support and care and envisioning a new world as opposed to um, you know gathering for a for a picnic, um, even though there are picnics, there's been protest picnics, and there, that's been very moving too. I don't know, Justine, what do you think?
3: yeah, I, I agree, and I think that um you know, that I was spending some time with Riot Ribs, which was a mutual aid project that kind of popped up around July 4th, um, which was just the idea of, you know, we we feed the people. Um, And um, that was really fascinating to see because it was, during the daytime, right across the street from the federal courthouse and the Justice Center and those parks, completely different vibe, um, you know, the is still going about as usual, but just the outpouring of, you know, like free PPE, you know, um, for anybody who's around there, a lot of provisions for the houseless that are in that area um, or communities that are being impacted. So I think, um, as you were saying, Kate, that community of care and that kind of, the concern for others, right, is palpable. So that even when we're in these crowds and, as safely as possible like we understand that we're outside which has you know great that you know it helps uh keep down the spread everyone's masked and i think actually what's quite interesting is the idea that you can kind of spot who's maybe not actually there to protest but is there to disrupt or to observe or to challenge in some way is a lack of a mask like you can automatically if somebody's not wearing a mask there then they are automatically a concern because you recognize that there's a certain buy-in um within the community um that's been you know um that's been coming out um so yeah I, i would agree that it's it doesn't feel it's actually a really lovely space of community in these times where we can't assemble in the same ways that we would like to um but that where we feel the political expediency of protesting um outweighs i suppose the risks of assembly
2: yeah i mean sorry it it does seem to me that you know that just to sort of repeat some things that 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 i found important you know in this conversation you know that in the case of portland you know those nearly 90 uh, demonstrations and gatherings um, are sort of daily attestations and assertions of the importance of, of investing oneself and in one's efforts in support of others. Uh, whereas, you know, those beach gatherings and those other sort of, uh, of social events are really the complete opposite, right? It's people who are taking uh, in a collective way to assert uh, their own desire to invest in self.
0: There's so much to talk about here. I feel like we've barely scratched the surface and we could go on for another hour, but um, we're going to have to move on to our, to our next topic. But um, Justine Nakase, Kate Bridgeson, thank you so much for spending this time with us and sharing with our listeners your experiences and your insights from your time in Portland. Thank you thank
4: so you. much.
0: This summer was also, of course, the the time when um, those of us who are teaching, those of us who are conducting ongoing research, needed to adapt those activities to the COVID-19 pandemic and the restrictions that that has imposed on travel, on in-person gatherings. Um, This is yet another topic that we could do hours on, but I thought it would be nice for the co-hosts to touch base about a couple of aspects of what the pandemic has done to our professional lives. Um, One, of course, uh, universities and colleges worldwide, certainly in the United States, are navigating the the problem solving, the the difficult decisions that come with resuming uh, education, um, undergraduate studies, graduate education, in person, remote. Um, there are many, many different approaches, and an on you know a, a, a constant stream of news about how things are going at different universities. And I'm curious to know how that's going for Sarah and Harvey, as well as at WashU and other places that you've heard about. Um, I'm also interested in hearing about the experiences that. That we may have had with um, not the university teaching part of it, but the scholarly communication part of it. We have had the first um, completely online ATHA. Um, In another year, this would be the biggest thing that had ever happened. (laughs) The biggest thing going on in the field would be everyone talking about the biggest professional association in theater and performance studies converting to an online format. Um, So I hope we can have a chance to talk about that and and some symposia that have been happening. Um, But I don't know, Sarah, Harvey, do either of you want to give us not a complete overview of what's going on at your university, but um, aspects of the problem of going back into Uh, Teaching students about theater, uh, dance, performance, art um, that are on your mind these days. Feel free to give us an update from York or Boston or feel free to just talk about what you what's been on your mind as your institutions go go back to um, teaching people in the fall.
2: Yeah, I'll I'll dive in here. Uh, So at Boston University, we are back in person. Our dorms are open. Uh, Students are moving in right now over the next two weeks. uh, We are standing our own testing facility for COVID. So every undergraduate student is being tested twice a week. Uh, I'm being tested every week. In fact, I had a test yesterday. And um, yeah, so we're back in person along with a remote option for those who, for whatever reason, are unable or feel uncomfortable returning uh, to campus. I think the challenge with being in person uh, relates to breath, right? And and I think that that's things we're thinking about in terms of you know, COVID and COVID spread. So every so often I get emails um, in which different fields are reminding me of how truly extraordinary, amazing uh, students and faculty are in the performing arts. And what I, and for example, I received an email from a person who teaches flute, uh, and she was just like, we have superpowers, Harvey. And I was like, what do you mean? And she's like, did you know that the average person who plays a flute can blow air about 16 feet? Um, you know, so it blows any sort of model you might have around six feet of social distancing and all that. Uh, so that's where really the conversations were having. How do you sing in public? You know, How do you talk to each other in public, uh, much less how do you Block a scene uh, where you need to be like playing a domestic setting, and you and it's unnatural to be six feet apart. You know, so those are things that we're thinking about right now, uh, even within the context of testing.
1: So it's it's interesting. I think I think uh, from from BU to York, we're, we're I think at, at opposite ends of the of the approach. Um, so we are entirely um, uh, online remote instruction for the for the fall term coming up. Um, With certain uh, elements or certain uh, exceptions, when, if and when those become deemed safe to return. So, um, you know, right now, uh, Ontario, including the Greater Toronto area or the GTA is um, under stage three reopening. So no more than you know 50 people in a given space we're still looking at at fairly um, restrictive um you know what we can do in spaces so we're as we sort of abide by those we're trying to gradually go back um, and increase our in-person activities but Um, You know, over the summer, uh, we've had this uh, this wonderful kind of community of practice group called Remotely Interesting, which has basically been (laughs) um, people across the arts. But but, you know, particularly in the performing arts, basically attending regular sessions and sharing information and practicing and uh, tips and everything for how to deliver all of the courses that we have going uh, theater, dance, music, uh, sculpture. Uh, you know painting um, design, computational arts, right I mean the whole gamut how we're how we're going to deliver those and and some are easier than others um, And so yeah so it's it's been pretty uh, amazing um, and unbelievably stressful. I mean I just you know no one has had a summer uh, and you know I think, I think people have, have been sort of extraordinary in managing to you know, eke out research here and there, but for the most part, we've just been trying to figure out how to, how to manage it all um, and, and really how to then include all of our students, right? Those that are uh, you know, very close or, or even on campus, those that are in the general area, as well as those that might be you know, on the west coast. Um, or around the world. And so that's really where where it's been a pretty extraordinary challenge. Um, at the same time, as someone who's spent the last 20 years or more really invested in digital performance um, and online research and digital humanities and uh, digital historiography, I'm, I'm I'm kind of feeling some parts of this. Like, I'm pretty excited <laughs> that, you know, like now everybody's acting for the camera mm-hmm. um, we are all you know it's like perform the like the the age of the golden age. this will be looked at as the golden age of online performance criticism because there is more <laughs> material circulating of previously or what would have been previously live performances on screens than ever before and and there are i'm I am sure any number of um, you know bootleg idiosyncratic archives that are being collected as people, you know, document this time, make recordings, record things they're seeing, share those. And so that's, that's actually going to be a really interesting uh, historiographic problem uh, challenge in the next 10, 15 years as we go through and past this era, um, is how do we capture it? And what is um, ephemeral in these digital items, uh, and what, and, and what endures and how do we, how do we make archival sense of that? So I'm, you know, it's, I don't want to take anything away from all of the challenges and the stress and like, believe me, I'm like, I spend, I don't know how many hours a week in zoom. Um, and at the same time, there are these kind of amazing, amazing moments and opportunities. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it is, it's a crazy time. (laughs) ACV. Right, anos coronavirus. <laughs> that's, that's what it is. I like that.
0: I like that better than plague year. I was for a minute. I was no. Trying it's
1: BCV to, ACV.
0: You know. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Yeah, for a minute, Before I was trying to trying to convince our department that we should call our season like our plague season, and I couldn't figure out why people didn't want to go with that. Um, it's <laughs> yeah. interesting to hear the the different um, postures that you're to. Fairly sizable universities are taking. WashU is definitely going ahead with uh, on perso- person in person instruction. Students are coming back to campus in about two weeks. Um, we I think we were unique as, as, in a university in opting to push back the start of classes rather than do it as previously scheduled or early which some did Um, this is giving WashU some time to see what's going on at other universities and so when you have massive outbreaks like it happened at UNC or or other schools that are switching suddenly to in person or to online I think part of the idea is that we'll be able to get some information and adjust Um, but uh, you know we have we're doing both things. Um, We're Allowing all of our classes to be able to be completed entirely online for for the students who, for example, are going to be enrolled and participating from China, of of which we have many. And, you know, yesterday we were given departments were given the lists of the rosters of our classes with where everybody will be and will people be in Hawaii? Will people be in China? Will people be in another time zone in the continental U.S.? Um, at the same time uh, we are faculty who want to um, are able to do class meetings in person under a list of policies, um, universal masking, six foot distance, um, self checks um, by students and faculty and staff to try to do the best job possible of mitigating and reducing the spread of the virus once people are back. Um, And part of the effect of that is that it just It creates a ton of complexity, a ton of extra stuff that we all need to be thinking about and and figuring out and and getting used to, which does increase the stress. But my sense of it is, you know, I, I understand why there are people, faculty in particular, who think we should just be online. We should not be messing with the virus in person. I can understand that point of view, certainly for people who are at, um, Uh, increased risk it makes sense Um, and I very much understand the other side of the argument as well which is that on the one hand you know we're inviting students back we're collecting tuition payments from them and um you know, telling them you can have the college experience that you are used to and that you have been working for and that you're, you've been paying for, or your parents have been paying for. Um, um, how can we offer that without allowing the students to be in a classroom together to, to see the faculty face to face and, and for a performing arts department, that means having some sort of season, you know, our dance and drama events are part of our curricular offerings. And, um, We have ultimately decided on a slate of events that can all, they can all happen online. And in fact, I think there will be very little in-person theater and dance making with an audience present. I think we'll have dance concerts that are filmed. So you'll have performers on a stage, designers, you know, professors and students working together. Um, But if you're going to want to see it, you're going to be streaming it or watching a video recording of it later. We are building a medieval-style traveling pageant wagon on an old (laughs) 19-foot trailer um, that will allow us to stage outdoor events. That's Um, pretty cool. That's pretty that, cool. That's, I'm glad yeah. you think so. Our um, faculty uh, scenic designer, Rob Morgan, has headed this up, and um, the thing is being fabricated, and we hope that we'll be able to use it in the spring. We're, we're going to put um, a medieval mystery project um, in the season, and the idea will be we'll be able to do it in a sort of updated Renaissance and, and medieval era style. But we don't know what's going to happen. So there, there's all sorts of different factors, and, and we're having to get used to the idea of the unpredictability, which does add a lot of burden to everyone's lives. Um, Sarah, I'm glad you brought up the kind of excitement of some of these digitally streamed um, performances and, and the sort of golden age of digital uh, performance. This is actually your pandemic treat, right, is is all of the digital stuff that's coming that you're going to get to enjoy. Um, but I've been similarly um, kind of excited and, and uh, happy about some of the scholarly events that have happened. Um, Atha went fully online. I was able to take in a session, not the session, the plenary that you were part of, Harvey. I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I was able to check out one of the regular panels. Um, Douglas Iaco, who we all saw at Circe last year, was on this session um, and sharing some of his work about dance and automation. Um, that was great. It was great to be able to catch an Atha session um, on a random afternoon when I was free and and. You know, didn't need to put on a tie or anything like that. And I'll, ha- I'll say also that I really enjoyed um, getting to see two of the three sessions of the um, symposium that Nick Rideout and some of his collaborators have put on on the themes of performance, possession, and automation. So, um, you know, this was Nick Rideout, um, Rebecca Schneider, um, Keela was on a Tompkins, uh, other collaborators on this theme. People distributed all over the world and able to give their communication from wherever they were. And also um, I got to log in and see it. Um, I was thrilled. This is the type of, you know, online scholarly communication that since before the pandemic I have been, and other people have been arguing, we should be figuring out how to do. It's much less costly in terms of finance. It's much less costly in terms of carbon burn and climate. Um, And, I understand why it's why there's resistance to it. It's In a way, it's kind of a bummer to experience scholarship that way without being able to grab someone in the hallway afterwards and say, what did you think about this? And tell me about your book and et cetera, et cetera. But um, those events were very stimulating, very exciting. And there's also something about the way that the Q&A is different. Um, And I would say less of a pain when you're doing it through Zoom. People can put their questions and comments in the chat, right? Um, They can be moderated by someone. So you don't have the problem of someone raising their hand and then asking a question, which is really a – 5 minute lecture about their own pet topic that holds everyone hostage. Um, the the moderators and the and the participants can actually, you know, pick the things that they want to respond to. You can run a sort of progressive stack in that way. You can make, you know, make it so that you have a good and equal representation of people's comments and perspectives from different points of view. So, I don't want to go on and on about it, but I just wanted to say that those events were great. I thought they were fantastic and I have a question for you two, um, which is, do you imagine that, you know, however many years it is, uh, two, three years, when the the pandemic is not so much of a factor in our lives and there are more options, do you imagine that some of this conferencing capability, some of these online scholarly events will persist just because of their own virtues and not because they're necessary with the virus spreading. Do you think we're going to see a partial or, or large transition to new modes of scholarly communication?
2: Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, it, yes and no. Yes and no. I mean, there's, a, there's it, if you think about some conferences and what they do, a lot of them are for the interpersonal networking, right? So you go to the conference not just for uh, the opportunity to present your work, but to, you know, be introduced to and get to know this person or that person. So I remember when I first started going, you know, on the conference circuit to ASTR, American Society for Theater Research, Performance Studies International, uh, Association for Theater and Higher Education (ATHA). Uh, you know, like I, I think presenting my work was important in some ways because it's like I wanted to get it out there. There's also the, the CV aspect of it, but the thing that was most important for me, you know, was to be in a room and see uh, live, <laughs> you know, like the scholars, to see Marvin Carlson presenting or. Uh, to uh, have that first conversation with Joe Roach in a hallway, um, and 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 that became meaningful to me. And, and I think over time, I developed a fair number of of friendships, right? You know, through the hallway, through the bars, uh, through uh, the things that exist outside of the formal conference presentation. So to put in perspective, I think this year I'm working on, I think five uh, external evaluations for people and. Uh, most of the people I've met or I've seen or encountered uh, in like a live capacity uh, through conferences you know so I think that that is something that that that's lost. but that being said, you know I, I had a couple of great experiences uh, one at atha most recently online uh, was where I served as a mentor for a graduate student subcommittee on you know creating new syllabi uh, and and that is a session that in itself as a live session is kind of deadly <laughs> you know like if you're an audience member for that, I don't know why you're even in the room for it, uh, but you know, thanks to sharing the screen, uh, thanks to the intimacy of Zoom, it actually allowed for a conversation around pedagogy and teaching practice that was uh, quite inspiring. So, so I, was, I was thrilled for that. Um, and then I didn't attend any of the new book sessions, but my wife uh, is a huge fan of book launches via Zoom uh, because it's like oftentimes there is the book launch on campus and you have people struggling to get there when they're available. But you can actually get together a lot of people all over the world uh, to participate in a book launch. So I think that that might be the future uh, post-pandemic.
1: Yeah. You know, just before we started recording, um, I was attending Kareem Chubkandani's um, um, Ishtel uh, book launch, um, which began with a wonderful video performance and included um, commentary from from folks that I just don't get to hear from enough. And it was was really, you know, in classic Kareem style, like... um, Very stylish, very fashionable, and totally uh, smart and engaging. So really, really enjoyable. Um, I really hope we don't go back to conferences (laughs) in the way that they happened before. Um, I see absolutely no reason, and I've always kind of struggled with this to be perfectly honest, Um, why we have conferences where a bunch of theater people for, uh, of all things, sit and read their papers aloud to one another. I can read the paper faster than I can listen to you deliver it. Um, Rarely, and there are some wonderful rare exceptions, but rarely is the delivery of the paper worth the time to collectively gather us all in a room. And if you just think about the amount of time, right? These things could easily be recorded. They could be asynchronous. Like what we should really be doing in a room is talking to one another. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel the same thing about teaching, right? I mean, like if it's just, you know, if there is a mode that, if there are things that video and Zoom and, and asynchronous engagement, whether it's conference or, a, or classroom, it does absolutely superior, and then there are things that absolutely have to be you know in person um and that and then that really benefit from that and then there is another broad category that I think we have been dismissive of, but is where i basically i will i will live and and you know like persist in this middle, which is that things like that enrich each other by the combination, and I am all about the hybrid, and I am all about making the most of what of what new technologies and new opportunities give us, without feeling like we we need to somehow surrender, um, you know, the preciousness of of what has been passed. And if there is one one really great thing to come out of this incredibly bad difficult time, um, it's that is that we all suddenly have to reconcile. And, and, and confront this together. Um, and, and I think that is leading to some really wonderful and imaginative and exciting thinking that, is, that I hope will endure um, in, in the years to come, particularly in, in scholarly communications where you know, half the time being live doesn't feel like it matters nearly as much in the experience as it does in the, in the enthusiasm.
0: That's well said. I, I tend to agree, though I, I think um, maybe I'll. This might be a tick that I have in the podcast of being like the diplomatic person between Sarah and Harvey. But I do think there's something. I do think Harvey is right, and the proponents of in-person conferencing are right about there being something special and an extra experience that's valuable about your physical presence in the building and the ability to have these memorable experiences where you've got a one-on-one or you know a sort of strange group of four people assemble in the hallway or at the bar and you end up having a conversation you never would have planned or thought about ahead of time. I'm sure there are ways to capture some version of that through these digital means, um, but on the whole, I think... We should be, you know, mixing in a large portion of this internet-enabled scholarly communication. Um, but here's the here's the real challenge to 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 what you've just said, panel, or,
1: or to to any kind of advocacy to go back exclusively to the in person. So so there are a couple of downsides that I see coming out of this, and and one is simply that like. The resource extraction required for large mass gatherings, particularly internationally, but even across a landmass the size of the United States, uh, continental U.S., um, is exorbitant, and and it's going to be very quickly um, not not uh, like not a good idea in terms of climate, right? And the second is that that resource is not just about. Um, raw materials and energy consumption, and uh, you know, uh, climate change-producing activities um, like flying, but also, um, you know, what it's going to cost. Mm-hmm. And my fear is that when we cling to the preciousness of the of the chance encounter into the networking, which and, and as being, you know, really requiring in person, which I don't, on its face, contest. Right, I think absolutely. Like, it's really hard to bump into someone accidentally in Zoom, right? Like in my days now, I have no chance encounters with anyone, right? If like <laughs> if you, if I did not get my Outlook invite and I had accepted <laughs> it, right, and then we all link up and then you've got the password. Like, I don't, I don't bump into anyone, you know, ever. Mm-hmm. However, I do worry about. Um, again, tying to resource, like we will create and we will stratify the field and we will have a small group of people who can afford and are willing to expend the resources necessary to travel and meet online with the other people who are available and resourced and willing to to meet in, I'm sorry, meet in person. And then we will have a whole bunch of folks who for a bunch of reasons can't or won't travel to those kinds of in-person activities. And unless we right now Really grapple with that fundamental inequality in our field, then we are just going to split it apart, and um, and it'll be really really hard to to pull it back together in ways that are that are meaningful and truly inclusive in the way that we all say, um, and I and I believe deeply believe we want to be.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I I, I agree. <laughs> you know, I, I I think what's going on here is that. Uh, the future is going to have to be hybrid in some manner. And there will still be a desire to get together interpersonally. Uh, I mean, there are some areas in the field, especially if you think about English departments, for example, in the MLA, where there's a job search. You know that, That's part of the whole thing. Um, that being said, I do believe that you know, one of the most pressing issues going, uh, facing us is going to be like, can people afford to go to multiple conferences, mm-hmm. um, and 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 that's a pressure point for us. And we know if you look at the fields of, of theater studies, performance studies, there have been fewer people uh, receiving funds in the last twenty years for journal editing, for uh, personal research, for conference travel. You know, and I worry that in a post-COVID moment with austerity you know, that more and more people will find themselves lacking the resources to be able to go to conferences. And there can be that disparity, uh, not only by the rank, uh, of a person's sort of, uh, status within a university, whether they're a lecturer or assistant professor, associate full professor, whatever else, you know, but also a differential in terms of how the, how universities themselves choose to fund the
0: arts. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Well, this will be an ongoing conversation in the field and, and many other fields are going to be having for, for many years. Um, so before we conclude and get to our drafts, um, we wanted to take some time and just talk a little bit about the future of the podcast. Uh, we are changing as well. Um, this, this change, I do not think, has really been brought about by um, the pandemic foremost. But in a way, the conditions of working under the pandemic are making it necessary for for me and I imagine for Sarah and Harvey as well. Um, But for for four years, we've been um, producing this podcast on the sort of three co-host. Model, um, and it's been such a pleasure, and uh, I'm really proud of what we've done, and and have been so happy to spend so much time with Sarah and Harvey. But we're going to transition this year into a model where we have, don't worry, still the the co-hosts will be on episodes, um, but we're going to start reaching out to a, a broader group of of colleagues in the field to come in and be part of the three-headed model. So whereas we have been, with some uh, uh, important exceptions, uh, the three uh, voices you hear on every episode, we're going to start to mix in other people so that on a given episode, you may just hear Harvey and then uh, from the original uh, triad, and then we'll have a couple of other guest co-hosts who come in. We're imagining um, there will be several people who who contribute uh, frequently to this model, Um, and for the time being, for the foreseeable future, you'll always have at least one of the three of us. I think we should also make a point of occasionally getting the band back together and having the three of us on a single episode. Um, But we are going to sort of Phase back our involvement as individuals in the co-hosting duties um, significantly, um, and there are good reasons for this that I'm sure Sarah and Harvey can can fill in the the um, information on. Um, for one thing, I think you know we when you look at our website and the sort of copy, the blurb that we wrote originally um, advertising it, part of the appeal is that um, you've got three established scholars talking about what's going on in the the broad field of theater and performance studies. And in those four years, we have only become more established. So we are now, (laughs) you now have one department chair and two deans of colleges um, contributing. And we really feel like it's vital for us to have a a greater mix of people who are not quite so established um, and can speak more directly to the experiences of assistant professors of graduate students, postdocs, independent scholars. Uh, We want that voice to be enhanced and for the podcast not to just become an increasingly established and and conservative representative of people who are um, quite well progressed in their careers. And there are other reasons to to do this as well that I think lighten the The workload on on us and and spread that out as well but um we wanted to let you know that and you'll see the implementation of it in coming months um but i don't know sarah harvey do you have other perspectives on this or 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 thoughts about this kind of new chapter in the podcast
1: just to say that i'm i'm really looking forward to it i think you know there's also um as a listener of podcasts uh I've, it's been really fun to do this, um, and also really gratifying when people talk about listening to it. So I just want to say a, a big thank you to people who have been listening, whether you've listened to the last couple of episodes, or you've been one of the you know faithful with us since we began um, over four years ago, actually, which is really quite amazing. Um, uh, almost five years ago is when we started doing our test test mm-hmm. cases. Um, so so that's really, really wonderful. But I also feel like, and I've had this experience as a listener, after a time, you, you can kind of predict where everybody's going to land, you know, because you've heard them talk through. And, you know, I mean, our, our field changes a lot, but but sometimes not all that much. So I think it will be really nice to have to have someone commenting on some of these questions where you can't actually predict how they're going to respond or what they might say about it. So I, I really welcome this. And, and I just wanna also say kudos and thank you to panel for starting this. Uh, I think it was just about five, five years ago or so and, and inviting me to be a part of it and, and to Harvey for being a part of it. And I'm just, I, I, it's been really one of the most fun professional things that I've been able to do uh, in, in my career. So thanks so much for, to, to both of you.
2: Yeah. And, and I'll just add that this has been a blast and it's not, it's not ending uh, at all. It's continuing. And I do think that it's, um, it's, it's giving this uh, podcast a burst of, of new energy and, as was noted, uh, new, newer perspectives and different perspectives. I've had the opportunity to step away for a couple uh, episodes and the, and the gift of that for me, um, sort of personally, uh, outside of whatever sort of scheduling conflicts that existed, you know, where that allowed me to tune in to the podcast as a fan. Uh, and, and and to like listen not knowing what was going to occur in the next minute or the next half an hour. Uh, and that's something that I'm looking forward to personally, the opportunity to contribute both as a contributor, uh, a person who's on air, but also as a person who gets to listen alongside so many of our other listeners and to be surprised uh, and uh, amazed by the brilliance of the guests who come on.
0: Um, I will um, uh, also say that we're we're going to benefit from the the contributions of an associate producer, Carly Kessler, who is muted and observing in this episode. But maybe we'll hear her voice on future episodes. Um, Carly is a, a student at WashU and a, and a podcast enthusiast, and is already making um, the work of producing this this much easier and much more pleasurable. Um, with that, uh, uh, Sarah Harvey, why don't we? get into our drafts Um, um, I'll make my draft pretty quick um, and I'll lead off so my department, um, uh, the Performing Arts Department at WashU, like a lot of other departments, I think has responded to this year by taking a new look at our curriculum and our way of programming our seasons um, with the renewed attention to um, the importance of, of foregrounding the voices of, um, of people of color, of different perspectives. Um, you know, it, it, since certainly since the mid 90s, um, when I Started doing, um, you know, being trained in in theater and performance studies. I've been aware of the problems of what's on the syllabus and who's excluded on the syllabus, and how do we program our seasons, and why are the voices and the and the authors so white and so male? Um, But we've gotten an extra push from that this year, and so. we're looking at our syllabi in our theater history classes. We're looking at the way seasons get assembled. And I just wanted to recommend an, an essay by actually a former student um, named Chelsea Whitaker, who has a new piece in HowlRound called Exploring an Anti Policing Theater. Um, uh, I like it in particular because I know Chelsea, and, and she's a fantastic activist. Um, and she writes about her experience in April 2018 watching Hamilton, the touring production in St. Louis, and goes on to give elevate some really important sort of guidance principles about how to construct an, an, uh sort of anti-racist um, uh, season and how to consider uh, what the sort of fundamental assumptions should be of programs that are looking to reform and improve the work that they do. So um, I'll put the link to this on the website, but I recommend reading uh, Chelsea Whitaker's um, essay, Exploring an Anti-Policing Theater.
1: If I can just uh, follow up on that real quick, and then I'll slide into my draft as well. Um, There was just a piece on HowlRound not long ago about a project that Sharon Green, and um, I'm going to forget her collaborator's name, um, uh, ran at Davidson College, um, looking particularly like, it's called The Count, and looking at, Variety and diversity in productions at small liberal arts colleges. So, so kind of along the same the same ideas, but but as a way of collecting data and reflecting that back to to the field and and what that looks like. So, um, that's a really great great piece that the kind of companion piece that goes along with with what panels describing. Um, the my draft is actually to um, uh, give a highlight to a new initiative coming out from the association. Uh, I'm sorry, the American Society for Theatre Research um, called the Astor Commons. And this is a project um, started by a small subcommittee of the executive committee chaired by Paige McGinley. And the purpose of the of the Astro Commons is, is very much in line with what Kate Bredesen, who is also a member of the committee, um, was talking about earlier, which is this mutual aid and, and mutual care. And so the idea is putting together an online community to connect people who are looking for different kinds of expertise for their classes. Um, uh, with people who are available to provide that, and particularly trying to make more opportunities available for guest lectures by contingent faculty, uh, faculty of color, um, you know, people who may not be kind of in certain networks, to go back to our earlier conversation, um, but who have some really important things to contribute. And so it's a little bit like a, like a matchmaking service um, of putting, you know, need with offerings and, and wherever possible, you know, really encourage. Encouraging folks to direct resources um, to to people to to really broaden what they're doing in their classes and also serve our our broader field and particularly our our more vulnerable and and precarious colleagues. Um, So that is now available on the Aster website. Um, uh, So Aster.org and I'm gonna oh I just lost my little note. Yeah, Aster.org slash page. P-A-G-E slash commons, C-O-M-M-O-N-S. Um, and it's got quite a few people posting what they have is available and also some folks starting to post what they'd like. But it's a it's a great resource, especially for those of you who may be teaching some or all of your um, fall courses online. Um, and also a way to, to think about, again, how to address some of the demands that that are being made by students all over um, about having greater representation and and you know, access to different ideas and people in their courses. So great resource and, and kudos to, to everybody at Aster, um, including Paige, who made that happen. Great.
2: Thank you. Yeah. And and for me, my my draft is uh, actually tied into something that, that's fairly new that I'm not really working on. I just sort of popped in and helped out for a day. <laughs> you know, so I, I absolutely know uh, significant role in this other than um, I think lending my name and uh, a few interviews uh, and, and that's this collaboration that's existing between Yellow Brick which is a online educational um, sort of program company that sort of records videos in the arts and other fields uh, and it's a partnership that they're having uh, between Yellow Brick and uh, NYU uh, school, the is Tisch School of the Arts and also backstage like backstage as in like the acting, casting Um, magazine and website. And what it is, is they're working on a yellow brick NYU backstage combined effort uh, to offer essentially distance education, online education, in which there's a series of modules that are pre-recorded and almost buffet style, you know, as I understand it, you know, students uh, can choose which modules and which sequence of modules they want to watch because it's all pre-recorded. Uh, And then by watching and presumably completing some assignments attached to them, you that will lead to uh, a degree of some sort, whether it's an associate, a bachelor's or a master's, I'm not quite sure. Uh, But I think it's probably in the sort of floating master's uh, category. You know, and I'm interested in that. I'm I'm sort of curious to see what that model looks like uh, in terms of uh, is there a future in which, you know, one can accomplish uh, initially advanced graduate training, but then later um undergraduate training in the performing arts you know not by having in-person education you know but by subscribing to sort of pre-recorded uh lectures um in sort of smaller chunks by specialists who are not necessarily tied into a university and therefore not uh tenured or supported by that university you know and it and, and you know so the enterprise creates a lot of questions uh for me uh and it's going to launch sometime in the next few months and I'm just uh, looking at it to try to see if this is offering us any sense of where we're headed as a field.
0: So, um, Sarah, Harvey, um, great to see you again. Good to see that you appear to be in good health and, and reasonably good spirits. Um, listeners, thank you for downloading and streaming. And we will have another podcast for you in about a month.
1: Hi. This is Sarah bae and I just want to recognize that I'm recording today from Tkaronto, what is now known as Toronto, Canada. I'm also supported by York University, which is situated on the traditional territory of many indigenous nations, and has been caretaken by the Ashinabic Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, the Huron-Wendat, and the Métis. It continues to be home to many indigenous peoples today. I acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation, This territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. Because we're recording today via Zoom and other technologies with servers and locations throughout the world, and because we're reaching an audience that is located uh, all over the planet, um, I encourage everyone to recognize and to take a moment to acknowledge uh, the histories of wherever you receive this podcast. Thanks very much.
0: On Tap is supported by the Performing Arts Department at Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. You can find us on the web at ontappod.com. Email us at hosts at ontappod.com. You can find us on Facebook, search for ONTAP, and on Twitter at ONTAP Podcast.